preserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But, to, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we come to you today knowing we're needy and knowing you have everything we need. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would grant me grace to preach your word, that, Lord, I wouldn't get in the way, I wouldn't be a distraction, but that the purity of your word would come forth and that you would apply it to our hearts. I pray that you grant us grace to hear it in the power of your spirit. And I pray that if there would be any in here today that is lost, whether they know it or not, that you would bring forth that effectual calling that comes through your gospel and through your word. And for those of us who are saved, you would do what you've promised to do, which is to build us up with your word, to grow us in your grace. We lean into you for this, and we trust you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. A familiar hymn written in 1865 by a gentleman by the name of Sabine Barring Gold. Let me ask you this morning, do you see yourself as a Christian soldier in a battle? A battle that Paul describes in Ephesians 6 as not against flesh and blood but against an unseen enemy. A battle with an enemy that, that he says uh, in other places blinds the minds of unbelievers and seeks to confuse the minds of believers in an effort to divide and devour the church. See, the truth is, if you're anything like me, sometimes we forget that we're soldiers in a battle with a real enemy. Sometimes we settle into this unbiblical form of Christianity where we look a lot more like spectators looking onto a battlefield, watching others battle, and we ourselves are, are sitting back instead of actually being those soldiers that are engaged in the battle. Well, the book of Jude is meant to be like a, a bucket of ice-cold water that's dumped on us, sobering us up to the reality that we are soldiers in a real battle with a real enemy, that comes to us through false teachers and false teaching. And the battle is for the truth, the truth of God's Word. I've titled this sermon today, Contend, the Battle Plan, because Jude is going to be laying out for us today our marching orders as soldiers in a battle. And, and that battle, of course, is that battle for truth. And we're, we'll be looking at, deeper into that in just a moment. But before we do that, just a little bit of a context in the book of Jude to remind those of us who have been 
uh, going through the book of Judah and those who may not have been here, this is, this is what the, the background of the book of Judah is about. See, Jude was the, uh, most likely the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wrote this letter to a local church that was in the thick of the battle, and they didn't even know it. Apostates, which are men who, had, who were professing to be believers, they were trust, professing to be trusting in Jesus Christ, but in actuality had actually turned away from Him by their sin and by their teaching. See, they had infiltrated the church. They had snuck in under the radar and they had made their way onto the membership roles and that they were leading people astray by their false teaching. They were turning, Jude says, the grace of God into something that it's not. They were turning the grace of God into a license to continue to indulge in sin, specifically sexual sin, Jude says. And so Jude picked up his pen to, to write to the church to warn them that the enemy was present and the battle was on, and he calls the church to fight, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is, to contend for the faith. That is, the body of Christian truth that's handed down, uh, delivered by God to the apostles and through the apostles to the church. It's what we know today as our Bibles. It's what's contained in here. And so last time what we saw is that they, we noted a shift in Jude's letter where he is, uh, and, and it starts in verse 17, because up until that point, Jude had been, he'd been talking about the apostates. He'd been describing the apostates. He'd been describing how dangerous they are. And in verse 17, something happens. He shifts to talking to the church. And he begins to lay out the battle plan of how to contend for the faith. And the first step in that battle plan, as we saw last, last time in verses 17 through 19, is to remember, <laughs> to remember that we live in an age of apostasy, to remember, to be alert to the fact that we are in a battle, and that battle, again, is for the truth, the truth of God's Word in our own hearts and in general. And in our text today, what I want you to see is I want you to see the next three steps in that battle plan that Jude lays out for us. Here's what I want you to take away today. We must contend for the faith by remaining obedient through the word and prayer, running after the spiritually seduced, and relying on our captain to keep us until the end. So how can we stay faithful in an age of apostasy? How can we prepare ourselves so that we are the ones that are not unwittingly deceived and, and led astray by apostates? Well, Jude answers that question for us in the first uh, point, which is to, re in the first part of the second step in the battle plan, remain obedient through the word and prayer. I want you to see that in verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's an imperative. That's a command. And that sounds a little strange, doesn't it? I mean, after all, isn't it God who keeps us in His love, not the other way around? We keep ourselves in God's love? Didn't we learn uh, from Paul in Ephesians that that it is God who set His love upon us before the foundation of the world? Didn't Paul tell us in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? So what does Jude mean, keep yourselves in the love of God? Well, I want you to think with me for a moment about the prodigal son. The prodigal son, when he left his father's home on his sin spree, you know, he didn't, leave, he, didn't, he didn't separate himself from his father's love. He didn't have the power to do that, did he? But what he did do when he left his father's homestead is, is he separated himself from the place where he could experience the blessings of his father's love. So it wasn't until he came back to his father's homestead with a sorrowful and repentant heart that he could experience those blessings once more. And we get to see them in that text about the, the prodigal son, don't we? He got to experience the, the blessings of, of his love via his comfort, 
how his father's warm, forgiving arms wrapped around him, forgiving him. He got to experience his father's mercy as he was given something that he certainly didn't deserve. His father took his probably filthy, stinky rags that he was wearing and he wrapped a robe around him and placed a ring on his finger, restoring him. He got to experience the blessings of his love and his father's joy as as a party was thrown for him with the choicest of foods. You see, he was finally back in the place where he could experience the blessings of his father's love. Well, it's the same way with us. If we are genuinely saved, we can't separate ourselves from the love of God. We don't have the ability to do that. But we can separate ourselves from the place where the blessings of God's love are experienced. And so where exactly is that place? Where are God's blessings of God's love experienced? I want to let Jesus tell us where that place is. I want you to look at John chapter 15 with me. In this passage, Jesus is going to clearly show, show us what it means to keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, he's going to clearly show us uh, in the language that he uses, what does it mean to abide in his love? Here's what he says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see that? What does it mean to abide in Jesus' and the Father's love? What does it mean to keep yourselves in the love of God? It means to, Jesus says it means to keep His commandments. It means to stay in the place of faithful obedience. See, that's the place where the blessings of God's love are experienced and enjoyed, in that place of faithful obedience. When we're not living in that place, we're like the prodigal son. Settling for the pig food that the world has to offer instead of the blessings of God's love that come through obedience. Love, His joy and His peace and His contentment and the hope and courage and boldness and on and on. You see, the apostates that Jude is warning them about, they weren't living in that place of faithful obedience. And they weren't encouraging the church to, 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 to move towards that place of faithful obedience. They were trying to lure the church away from it. And so Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the place of faithful obedience. Don't be moved away from it. Let me ask you this morning, is that the place that you're living? Are you living in faithful obedience? Not perfectly, I'm not talking about that. None of us live in it perfectly, but is that something that you're pursuing genuinely? If it's not, I just want to encourage you this morning, take a cue from the prodigal son and recognize that there is nothing that the world can offer you that that will satisfy you. Nothing. It will come up empty just like him and then run back to the father through his son, Jesus Christ, with a humble and repentant heart and come to the place of undeserved blessing. Let me ask you this morning, how can you stay faithfully obedient? Just pick yourselves up by your bootstraps and do it. hate to burst your bubble, but you don't have the ability to do that. Jesus said, he said this, he said that apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, I'm like the vine, you're like the branches. As a branch can't bear fruit without being connected to the vine, so you can't bear fruit unless you're connected to to me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, we need Jesus to empower us in order to be faithfully obedient. In other words, we need His grace. And there are two means of grace that Jude points us to in this text that I want you to see. And if you're not familiar with that term, means of grace, I think J.C. Ryle gives a great definition of it. Here's, Here's what he says. He says, means of grace are appointed channels through which the Holy Spirit conveys fresh supplies of grace to the soul and strengthens the work which He has begun in the inward man. See, two channels that that of Jude is going to point us to, these two channels of grace that God conveys and provides fresh supplies of grace to us are the Word and prayer. 
Jude says that you and I need the grace that comes to us through the word and prayer in order to be faithfully obedient, in order to keep ourselves in the love of God, in the place where we experience God's, the blessings of God's love. I want you to hear what it says in the Net Bible. I think this makes it a, a little clearer for us as we think, think through this in the text. Here's what the Net Bible says. It says, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, maintain yourselves in the love of God while anticipating the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings eternal life. So what he's what this is showing for us is, is, the, is the how, the means. How do we stay faithfully obedient? How do we keep ourselves in the place of, of God's blessing, of, of his from, blessings from his love? And Jude says it, it is by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit. Those are the means. See, we remain in the, this place of where the blessings of God's love are showered on, on us only if we make use of the word in prayer. I want you to see this. First, look at the word. Jude says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And so Jude uses this picture of the church as a building that's being built up with materials. And those materials, he says, are your most holy faith. What's that? Well, just like in verse 3 where Jude says, contend for the faith. This is not speaking of your personal trust in Jesus Christ. Not that kind of faith, your personal faith. He's speaking again of the faith, that faith, the Christian faith, the body of truth that was delivered by God to the apostles and through the apostles to us, the church. Jude says to build yourselves up in that, to build yourselves up with this, the Word of God. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 when he is, uh, he is uh, comparing his ministry, uh, differentiating his ministry from Apollos's? He uses this picture of of building and building with materials. He says this. He says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are good materials. Wood, hay, straw, not so good materials. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. That's the day of judgment. We'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. See, within the church, there are only two types of building materials. Materials that fortify, they strengthen the church, and materials that are brittle, leaving the church weak. I remember when I went to a village in Guinea, West Africa, that people's homes were, were, were little huts made of mud and tree branches and straw. One spark could cause the whole thing to go up into flames. One strong puff of wind could cause the, the whole thing to just, to just collapse. It grieves me to say, there's so many churches and so many professing Christians today that are just as vulnerable to collapse as those little huts. Why? Because they've been built with brittle materials. They've been built with the wood and hay and straw of man's wisdom and false teaching instead of the precious stones of God's Word. And that makes them prime targets to collapse under the persuasion of apostates. After all, apostates are in the business of tearing down, not building up. But that's not our business. Our business is not to tear down. Our business is to build up. Our business as, as followers of Christ individually and corporately is to, is to build one another up with the Word. See, we're in a battle we're in a war, and in order to survive, we need to be building a fortress, not a rickety shack. You know, there's a reason why there's 8.6 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. There's a reason why there's 16 million Mormons in the world. There's a reason why so many once faithful church denominations have fallen into apostasy today. What's that reason? Because so many people in churches 
stopped being built with the Word of God and started being built with man's wisdom and false teaching, and they became rickety shacks. They were cut off from the channel of grace, which is God's Word, from the strengthening grace that comes from His Word, and they collapsed under the persuasion of apostates. That's why we are so annoyingly persistent here at Grace Church about trying to get the Word of God to you. That's why we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse by verse. That's why we preach sometimes longer than you want us to. That's why we have this book table over here with solid resources that can build you up with the Word of God being ministered through those books. That's why we teach theology in our 915 classes, our men's groups, and our women's groups, and our grace groups. That's why we relentlessly urge you to join us in the reading plan as we're reading together the Bible one chapter a day. See, we're trying to build a fortress by the grace of God, for the glory of God, a fortress that can withstand every wind of doctrine, every false teaching that the enemy tries to throw at us through apostates. And so let me urge you this morning, do not squander the opportunities that the Lord has placed before you. Don't squander them for yourself. Don't squander them for your spouse. Don't squander them for your children. Reprioritize as much as you can to study the Word daily. Reprioritize as much as you can to get in family worship during the evenings or at some point during the day with your families. Reprioritize taking advantage of the various Bible studies that are going on here at Grace Church. Remember that you're a soldier in a battle with a real enemy. And one of your primary weapons is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, a means of grace. The second way Jude says we keep ourselves in the love of God is by prayer. He says praying in the Holy Spirit. It's another means of grace. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because Jeff just talked about uh, prayer a couple weeks ago in his second sermon on Romans. I direct you to that sermon. It will bless you. But what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, I want you to remember for me what's been going on in the book of Jude, especially about the apostates, what he's been saying. He said in verse 19 that they are devoid of the Spirit. That means they're not indwelt by the Spirit. In verse 8, they are relying on their dreams. They're not relying on the Holy Spirit and the Word that He Himself inspired. And the result of their Holy Spiritless ministry in verse 19 was that they caused divisions. Tearing down the body, not building it up. And so Jude is making a contrast between the apostates and true believers when he writes praying in the Holy Spirit. It means praying indwelt by the Spirit, in dependence upon the Spirit, and submitted to the will of the Spirit. In other words, praying in the Holy Spirit means praying for what God has revealed in His Word to be accomplished in your life, in the lives of your families, and in the lives of your brothers and sisters in your church. And undergirding those prayers is this radical dependence on God Himself to do it because you know you don't have the strength. You need His grace to do it. At a very basic level, what's going on when we read the Word of God? God is speaking to us showing us what it means to be faithful to Him. And prayer is us speaking back to God, crying out to God for Him to give us the grace that we need to do what He's called us to do to be faithfully obedient. Show me someone who is growing in obedience, and I'll show you someone who is making use, a lot of use of prayer. Show me someone, for instance, that is becoming more and more faithful in evangelism, proclaiming the Word of God to other people. Show me that person, and I'll show you someone who's steeped in prayer. Listen to this. This is important. You see, the prevalence of prayer in our lives will correspond to how much we actually think we need God's grace. I'm going to say that again. The prevalence of prayer in our lives will correspond to how much we really think we need God's grace. Show me your prayer life, and I'll show you how much you think you need God's grace or how much you think you don't. That's convicting, isn't it? 
That's convicting. It's convicting for me because when I think about my prayer life, I think about things like this. Oh, how my mind wanders. I think, I think about how sometimes my prayers feel so stale, so hollow. I get embarrassed to think about how frequent they are or are not. And I'm a pastor. Can you relate? But the good news is that if you are in Christ, there is grace. The grace of forgiveness. But the grace to not live that way anymore. The grace to grow in your prayer life. And guess what? As we've already seen, there is a means of grace, a channel which God administers grace to His people, and one of those means is His Word. And guess what's being preached to you right now? The Word. And so we can pray, God, make us a people who hunger and thirst for Your grace and revolutionize our prayer lives so that our prayer lives actually evidence that we hunger and thirst for Your grace. You see, Jude is telling us that not only do we need to remember we're in a battle, but we need to remain obedient in that battle through the word and prayer. See, that's step two of the battle plan. As we move into step three, we'll see that in verses 22 and 23. Judah's going to be addressing a question that has been on the minds of the church he's writing to, a question that's probably been on your mind as we've been studying through the book of Jude. And that question is this, what do we do with those we know who are following apostates? What do we do with those who are inclined towards their false teaching, who have been charmed by their persuasive influence? Do we run away from them like they have a spiritual disease that we can catch? Do we sit back and we do nothing? Jude answers that question for us. Here's what he says in step three. Run after the spiritually seduced. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Notice that Jude mentions three groups of people who have fallen into various degrees of spiritual seduction. We'll call them the doubting, the devoted, and the defiled. And for each group, Jude is going to employ a different strategy that I want you to see. First, let's look at the doubting in verse 22. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. This word doubt means to waver, means to waver. There's this uncertainty in the doubter about what the truth really is. The apostate's false teaching has left them in a state of confusion. They don't know which way's up, which way's down, which is true, which is false. They're figuratively sitting on the fence and apostates are pulling them in one direction. And unless somebody comes and pulls them in the opposite direction towards Christ, they will most certainly fall off the fence on the wrong side of it, and they will move from being doubters to being a people who are devoted to deception. The strategy, Jude says, is to have mercy on them. To have mercy on them. That's a command, by the way. To have mercy in this context means to grab a hold of the doubter who's sitting on the fence and pull them towards Christ, pull them towards His truth. See, it's not merciful to let them be dragged over the fence without a fight. That's not mercy. That's cruelty. See, there's a propensity for us to buy into the lies of post-postmodernism. That your truth is good for you and my truth is good for me. And as long as we don't commit the unpardonable sin of imposing each other's truths on each other, everything's going to be all right. You know what that is? Baloney. It's baloney. It's baloney because if you keep your mouth shut, if you don't get the objective truth of God's word to the doubter, everything's not going to be all right. So have mercy on the doubting. How, preacher? By ministering the truth of God's word to them. Sit them down with the Bible. Open it up and bring clarity to the things that they're confused about. Write them a letter. Send them a sermon. Mail them a book. Do something, not nothing. Contend for the faith in their hearts. That's merciful. And that's a part of the battle plan. Second, Jude mentions the devoted in the first part of verse 23. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. These are folks who are no longer doubting, but rather they are devoted to the false teaching of the apostates. They are not on the fence anymore. They've already gone to the other side. And Jude describes them as being in the fire. 
You know, Jude has used this word already in, in this book. He's used it to describe God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He wrote that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. See, those who are devoted to these false systems that apostates lead them to are dwelling in a place where God's eternal judgment is certain to come raining down. That They're dwelling in a place where they're, it's like they're living in Sodom and Gomorrah today, and you and I, we know that tomorrow, fire is going to rain down from heaven and consume the inhabitants of that city. The strategy for the devoted, Jude says, is to save them by snatching them out of the fire. Save them. That's a command. It's an imperative. It means to rescue them from danger and to restore them to a former state of safety. How? Jude says, by snatching them out of the fire. To snatch means to to grab or to seize by force with the purpose of removing them. Isn't that what happened to Lot and his family who were dwelling in Sodom? By God's grace, He sent them messengers. God sent them messengers who urgently pleaded with them, you got to get out of here. God's judgment is coming from this place tomorrow. There's no time to delay. You must flee. And God used them to save Lot and his family from his judgment by snatching them out of the fire that was about to come. Our strategy for the devoted is uncomfortable. It's like we're on a rescue mission with a people who don't know they need rescuing. It's confrontational. It's emotionally draining. And it sometimes creates more enemies than it does friends. But love demands it. Love demands it. Just as love demands that we urgently plead with people to flee a burning building. So love demands that we urgently plead with people to flee from their apostasy and come back to Christ before the fire of God's wrath comes and rains down on them. See, don't buy into the lie that's in so many Christian circles that confrontation is unchristian. It's the most Christian thing that you can do for someone who's devoted to apostasy, devoted to their teaching. But as long as it's done in love and do it with humility and do it with tears in your eyes, save them by snatching them out of the fire. Be confrontational in the most loving way that you can. The last group that Jude mentions are the defiled. In the second part of verse 23, he says this, To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So the defiled are not only devoted to the apostates' teaching, they are devoted to the sins that the apostates' teaching legitimizes. And noting the context of this letter, we know that a lot of that was sexual sin had, was primarily probably in mind, though not excluding other sins. And he uses this graphic picture of a garment that's been stained by the flesh. This word garment refers to the uh, first layer of clothing that has direct contact with the skin. The, with the skin. In other words... It refers to your underwear. And the garment is stained because the body that touches it is filthy. The body that touches it is polluted. And so Jude uses this picture to show how easily sin can contaminate those who come in contact with it. How tempting it is. How easily it can spread and pollute others. But the strategy with the defiled is not what we might think it is. The strategy is is not to avoid them at all costs, lest you too be contaminated. No, the strategy, Jude says, is to show them mercy with fear. As we've already seen, that means to give the Word of God to them, proclaim the Word of God to them, plead with them. You show them through the Word that the missile of God's wrath is locked on to people who are living in the same sins that they are living in, and then you point them to the bomb shelter, which is in Christ Jesus, to be saved. That's merciful. And that's a part of the plan. But you do so with the utmost carefulness. You do so with the utmost caution because you understand how you're not yet inoculated from sin's temptation. You understand how easily sin can spread even to you. And in your heart, you hate how transmissible sin is. That's my child, by the way. I hate how transmissible sin is. <laughs> and you, so you approach those who are defiled with your guard up, protecting yourself and proclaiming the word of God. That's showing mercy with fear. 
You may say, well, pastor, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I hear what you're saying about the strategies for the doubting, the devoted, and the defiled. I hear all of that, but that's just not my gift. I've tried it, and it didn't go well. It strained my relationship with that person, and things are still kind of weird between me and them. If that's you, or if that's a fear that you have, I want to give you two responses to that and, and then one story. First, remember what the Lord Jesus said. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you're going to be obedient to Jesus, you're sometimes going to have to risk relationships becoming rocky, Right? That's denying yourself. That's taking up your cross, being willing to suffer. See, Jesus created some pretty rocky relationships in his three years of ministry on this earth, didn't he? And if we're going to follow him in his footsteps by speaking the truth in love, we can expect the same. Secondly, if that person that you had a confrontation with, if that person is still alive, <laughs> you don't know how God's going to use that. You don't know how he's going to use that. Sometimes the word of God is planted in confrontation and is not, does not sprout until years and years and years later in victory. Here's the story. One, one day, Dr. Walter Martin walked in to a proverbial Sodom. He walked into the Watchtower headquarters, that's the Jehovah's Witnesses, in Brooklyn, New York. And he walked in and there was a man behind the desk, a devoted Jehovah's Witness. And he began to, to use the word of God with this man to try to sow seeds of, of doubt about the false doctrines that Jehovah's Witnesses held to. Well, he left such an impression on this man that the next time Dr. Martin came to the doors of the headquarters in Brooklyn, New York of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the man wouldn't even let him in the door. He kept him out. Fast forward 20 years. Dr. Martin was at a Christian event, and there was an open mic that people could ask him questions. A gentleman steps up to the mic, and he says, Dr. Martin, you and I met 20 years ago when you walked into the Watchtower headquarters in Brooklyn, New York. He said, the first time you walked in, he said, we had an interesting conversation. He said, the next time you came, I wouldn't even let you in the door. He said, but I want you to know something, Dr. Martin. You sowed seeds of doubt in my heart that day. And 10 years ago, my wife and I left the Jehovah's Witnesses and were born again. See, by God's grace, this man and his wife were snatched out of the fire, rescued from Sodom. And God used what? The uncomfortable, confrontational conversation between Dr. Martin and this man in order to begin the process that God Himself would complete 10 years later. So let me ask you, who do you know that's doubting, that needs to be pulled off the fence? Who do you know that's devoted, that needs to be snatched out of the fire? Who do you know that's defiled, that needs the pure white garments of Christ to be held out to them? See, brothers and sisters, now is not a time for fear. Run after the spiritually seduced before it's too late. That is a part of God's battle plan. But you say, if apostates are so dangerous, Corey and their doctrine is so destructive, and their deeds are so contagious, I don't know that I want to risk it. I don't, I'm not sure I want to risk my salvation by running after them. I'm concerned that I might fall. Well, that's a concern that Jude addresses in the conclusion of his letter, which is also a doxology. And if you don't know what a doxology is, it's, an, it's this outburst of praise that comes from a place where Paul, uh, Jude, in this instance, has has apprehended the grace of God and the glory of God and the greatness of God, and he just can't contain himself. He just can't contain himself, so he has to let it out. Here's what he says in step four of the battle plan. Rely on your captain to keep you until the end. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I had a member of Grace Church come to me as we've been preaching, going through Jude, and they said, Jude scares me. 
scares me because I'm just afraid that, that I could be that one that falls into apostasy. Maybe you're experiencing and have experienced some of the same concerns. If that's you, you know what you need to be reminded of? The doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And that's exactly what Jude points us to. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who is able to keep you from stumbling? Not you. In this context, he says, God the Father. The ability to keep you from stumbling lies in him, not in you. If it were left up to you and me, you and I, we would fall into apostasy. You could be sure of that. And if you don't think that's true, uh, then I would just point you to get your, get your face in the Word of God to see that what the Bible teaches about human depravity, what the Bible teaches especially about our sin-corrupted hearts that we're born with, how it, they tend towards sin. If you think about it, Adam, he was born without a sin nature, in original righteousness, and it didn't take him long to, to fall into apostasy, did it? No, the Scriptures teach that it is God who keeps His people. You maybe remember Peter talking to persecuted Christians in 1 Peter, a people who were probably wondering with all the heat of persecution coming to them whether or not they would be able to persevere in the faith. And here's what Peter says to them. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Stop. He has caused that. He's caused us to be born again. He did that work. It was His power that began our salvation in eternity past and then in our lives through the new birth. And then look what it says, how, how His power completes it. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, here it is, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, it is His power that guards our faith. It's His power that keeps us trusting in the gospel. It's His power that keeps us from apostasy. It's His power that completes the salvation that He started. He is able to keep you from stumbling. So if you have been born again, how do you know you've been born again? Because you've been given a new heart. And that new heart is a heart that, that hates the sin that it once loved and loves the righteousness that it once hated and is pursuing that. That's how you know you're born again. Get your eyes off of you and get your eyes on Him. He is going to keep His people. And that's exactly what Jude says next. And to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Do you know that in order to stand before the presence of God and survive, you have to be blameless. That means that the record of your life has to show that you never sinned before, but that you've always been obedient to Him in your thoughts, in your motivations, in your language, in your words, and in your actions. It means that you must have never lied, but have always spoken the truth. It means that you must have never lusted after another in your thoughts, but always had pure and God-honoring thoughts. It means that you must have never taken God's name in vain, but always handled God's name with the utmost reverence and care and honor that it deserves. That's how holy God is. That He, His holiness demands perfect obedience, blamelessness from the creatures He created. So let me ask you this morning, are you blameless in the sight of God? Let me answer it for you. No, you're not. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you're not, I'm going to love you enough to tell you you're not blameless. I'm going to love you enough to tell you two life-changing truths from God's Word. First, that God has set a day in which He is going to judge the world according to His perfect righteous standard summarized in the Ten Commandments. And on that day, anyone who is not blameless, who has been seen as guilty as breaking those commandments, he is going to execute their sentence for their crimes against him, which is hell forever. If you're not blameless, that should cause you right now to have a lump in your throat, a sickness in your, in your stomach, and a cry in your heart that says, echoes that of the Philippian jailer saying, what must I do to be saved? 
And that's the second life-changing truth from God's Word, is you can be blameless. You can be saved by turning from your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain that. You see, the eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus of Nazareth, totally God and totally man. And He lived a blameless life, never sinning, always be obeying God the Father, earning this blameless record that is so important. When He went to the cross, He took the blame for His people's sins. The infinite wrath of the Father that would have come crushing down on His people in hell instead instead came crushing down on His blameless Son in their place. They had broken God's law. Jesus came to pay their debt to satisfy their hell sentence so they wouldn't have to. He laid down His life, was placed in a tomb, dead, But on the third day, he did exactly what he said he would do. He said, you destroy this temple, and I will raise it up on the third day. And that's exactly what happened. He raised up from the dead on the third day. The brainwaves started firing, the blood started pumping, and he walked out of the tomb victorious. Why is that important? Because it's God's sign to us. It is an undeniable sign that it's all true and all from God. What must you do to be saved? You must repent and trust in Christ. What does it mean to repent? It means a change of heart towards sin and away from sin and towards God with an endeavoring to follow Him the rest of the days of your life. And it's trusting in Jesus is the second element. That means to, as Jeff shared with us last, last week, it means not merely just to believe that the, the elements of the gospel are true. It means you are actually resting in that for your salvation. You've got all your eggs in the basket of Jesus for your salvation. The instant that you do that, the record of your sins is erased in the sight of God. And Jesus' blameless record is put in its place as if you had never sinned before, as if you had always been obedient in everything, in thought, in word, and in deed for the entirety of your life. And on that basis of Jesus' record, You are justified in God's sight. That means you're declared righteous in God's sight, saved from the hell your sins deserved, and saved to the eternal life that Jesus' blameless record deserves. See, the Scriptures tell us that everyone in whom God justifies, He will most certainly glorify. That's Romans 8.30. He will complete their salvation and usher them into the new heavens and the new earth where they will be with the Lord forever. No more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more relational conflicts, no more sin, no more heartache, joy in the presence of the Lord forevermore. What mercy, what a salvation. Do not neglect such a great salvation. If you are not trusting in the Lord today, I urge you and plead with you, repent and trust in Him before it's too late. And so, brothers and sisters, we can engage in this battle against apostates, and we can run after the spiritually seduced, being confident that our salvation is secure, because the captain of our souls will himself complete it. And that's why Jude ends this letter with such an outburst of praise for the, for the mercy through the gospel and the sovereignty over, over our salvation. Here's what Jude says. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It's crazy to think that this ends the sermon series that we've been going through in Jude. And Jude has been giving us so much meat to chew on. He's opened our eyes to the reality that something way worse than the big bad wolf is coming to try to huff and puff and blow this house down. And that's speaking of your individual faith as well as this church. The the strong wind of Satan's breath coming to us through apostates is coming. We've seen this strong wind come to entire church denominations and causing them to collapse. We've seen this wind come to millions of individual Christians that have been led astray. And Jude has shown us that they are a clear and present danger and not to be toyed with and not to be tolerated. But that's not all he's shown us. He's shown us that and reminded us that we are soldiers in a battle. 
And we have a captain who has given us a battle plan that will indeed bring us to victory. And that he himself is the captain who will ensure that victory. So we need not be afraid, brothers and sisters, but we must fight. We must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. Onward, Christian soldier. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to say thank you for your grace to your people in the book of Jude. I want to say thank you that you have given us so much. You've shown us how dangerous apostates are. You've been so gracious to, to, to sketch a portrait of them for us so that when they, when they come into our midst, whether that be on our TV screens, whether that be on our radios, whether that even be when they come into our church, that we will have a sketch to be able to say, ah, there's one, so that we can resist them and be a mighty fortress. You've been so gracious to give us a battle plan or a battle plan to that moves us to, to stay faithfully obedient to you, to keep ourselves in the place where the, where the blessings of your love are experienced in obedience. And we are able to do that through the grace that comes to us through your word and through prayer. Make us a praying people. Make us a people that are more in, in the word and love the word and hunger and thirst for it more and more. And you've been so gracious to tell us that there are people that we are to go after, to run after, to not sit by on the sidelines, but to run after the doubting, the devoted, and the defiled. Lord, grant us the courage to do that and to trust you with it no matter what, what the, the present ramifications of that may be. And we are grateful to know, as Jude reminded us at the end of this, that Lord... Those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have been born again, that our salvation is secure, that we can do all of this in confidence that we are not going to be the ones that fall into apostasy. So, Lord, I pray that we need, because we need your grace, build this place into a mighty fortress that's impenetrable to any wind of doctrine that comes that is not yours. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant those who are listening or have been influenced by apostates, grant them grace to run back. Take as the good shepherd, take your rod with that hook on it and take them and draw them back to the flock. Draw them back to faithfulness. We trust you for it. I ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen. I invite you to stand. Uh,